0: Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and thanks for joining me here today on The Communication Architect. Each week, we'll share content that will empower you to grow your personal leadership capacity through the development of communication competencies that build emotional health and relational resilience. We'll unpack some practical applications of interpersonal, intrapersonal, family, and organizational communication. And we'll connect with stories of transformation that will inspire you to achieve personal and social change. Now, let's build the scaffolding you need to become a communication architect. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn. If you're new to the show, we're in a season unpacking American education. Be sure to scroll back on my podcast for some tips on breaking free from the system, getting started on the parent-directed journey, some interviews with new and lifelong homeschoolers, and a whole host of research I hope will equip and inspire you for the road ahead. We've been talking about the 10 toxic traits of the public school system, and we see these fruits evidenced in the generational beliefs and behaviors of our youngest students. The seeds that have been planted in the public school classroom are now sprouting their tragic fruit across the landscape of an entire generation. Last week, we talked about the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure, and the great untruths, as the authors put it, being taught across schools across America, untruths that are harming students, that are setting them up for failure, that are telling them to trust their feelings, to avoid discomfort, to encase themselves in proverbial bubble wrap, to avoid the wounds of the world. And we talked about Dr. Everett Piper's snowflake revelation, where he saw college students curling up in a fetal position over unpleasant thoughts, a generation that, as he called it, cherishes comfort more than freedom. We talked about the vital nature of parents, the secure base that gives children the sense of security they need to go boldly out into the world and make a difference. If we want to raise resilient kids instead of snowflakes, we need to turn this ship around. In their book, The Power of Resilience, Drs. Brooks and Goldstein explain that a resilient mindset is characterized by several features. Feeling a relative sense of control over one's life, being empathetic, knowing how to fortify stress hardiness, displaying effective interpersonal communication, possessing problem-solving skills and decision-making skills, establishing realistic goals and expectations, learning from successes as well as failures, being a compassionate, contributing member of society, and living a responsible life based on a set of thoughtful values. Now, which of these characteristics did students learn in traditional schooling? The answer is none. Students' days are spent in doing work someone else determines to be important. We talked about 65% of their social time being lived out on a screen. They're segregated from anyone outside of their exact peer group. Their work is limited to ethereal constructs that have no connection to the real world. And there are no truths in the public system that would lead to development of values. It's only my truth and your truth, these flimsy constructs. And they have no control over how their time is spent, their actions, even their thoughts. Thought control is now a thing, my friends. Everything is governed by someone else. And when we look at things like the implications of stress, the implications of efficacy under the microscope, we see some biological markers that can help us understand why the traditional school system is not built for emotional health and resilience. In a study on stress, Michael Marmot of University College in London reported that clerks and secretaries were more likely to die of a heart attack than senior executives were. Taking into account all variables, researchers found that the lower the job category and the less control, the more likely people were to suffer from heart disease. Why? Because they had a perceived lack of control over their circumstances. This idea of circumstantial control or agency we've talked about over the last few weeks is linked to That desirable educational income outcome known as intrinsic motivation. Remember, we talked about a few weeks ago, the neuroscience research shows that the two keys to moving a student from external motivation to intrinsic or internal motivation are efficacy and curiosity. Efficacy being agency, the ability to perform something. How many traditional schools daily undermine these two essential mindsets by crushing curiosity and labeling students by their inabilities? My mom was talking with me this week about how thankful she is to have rescued her child from public school. She said her son, who was 10 years old, already told her every day he hated school, cried when she dropped him off. And she had this forced meeting with this whole group of teachers and psychologists circling her like a sheep encircled by wolves. And she quickly realized that they were repeating the same remedies they'd been peddling to her for five years. And she had this just moment of clarity where she realized they did not have her child's best interest at heart. She was done with the label. She was done with the lies. She looked at her son and he'd become this hollow shell of his former self, begging her every day not to send him back to the school that was literally crushing his spirit. And in that moment, The light went on for her. She pulled him out of school that day. She got the support to homeschool him. And she told me this week she hardly recognizes him. It's only been two weeks, but he's already excited about life and learning. He's talking nonstop and reading books on his own, something he never did in traditional school. And when he had the opportunity the other day to take a day off from his homeschool co-op and go to Disney World, he wanted didn't want to miss out on the biology of an octopus and really debated, do I want to go to Disney or to my co-op? Listen, this would have never happened in traditional school. He's crying every day. Please don't drop me off here. This is a student who was labeled slow, lazy. The teachers called him messy. <laughs> really? Uh, and now he has this new love of learning and a new lease on life. Pretty amazing. Brooks and Goldstein note that, quote, a life that is not balanced or authentic is ripe for discontent, shallow relationships, and stress, all characteristics that are not in accord with a resilient mindset. You know, the social media culture has literally groomed the next generation on what's perfect, what's lovable. Kids are constantly exposed to this inauthenticity resilience is developed through self-discipline, self-control. In fact, psychologist Daniel Goldman called self-control one of the top five elements of emotional intelligence. King Solomon ranked it higher than warfare. He said, better a man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think this peer-driven culture of traditional education is a model of self-control? Self-governance? Do children learn maturity and wisdom in the presence of their peers? No, most often they do not. Most often in the company of their peers, they learn folly, immaturity, reactivity. They're trained by peers who lack self-governance. We behave like the company we keep. And as doctors Nabor and Matei put it, it's not in the company of peers that the young grow up to be responsible, mature citizens. They have to be molded by adults. I mean, except those adults who coddle them, make excuses for them and refuse to apply godly discipline, right? Not those adults. We used to to say, you apply the rod of learning to the seat of correction. But in California, that's now considered highly offensive. So I won't say it. But the point of discipline is to teach self-government. Remember Hebrews 12? We talked about that a few weeks back. God disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. This is an opposite point of view to the world system because Hedonism has literally infiltrated our parenting. But discipline, again, root word, disciple, we are making disciples, is a vital component of later self-government. If we don't learn to discipline ourselves, someone else will have to do so. Think how many crimes are committed for the simple lack of self-discipline. Hezekiah was one of the, quote, good kings of Judah, but like many leaders before and after him, he failed to prepare his descendants. He Failed to disciple his family line. Scholars even go so far as to call him, quote, disappointing as a man and a father, but even more so as the steward of David's dynasty. When Hezekiah learned that his pride in displaying his wealth to the Babylonians would lead to his dis- descendants being enslaved as eunuchs, which would threaten the family line, of course, he said, At least there will be peace and security in my days. What about us? Are we willing to make the necessary sacrifices to prepare our children and our children's children for the future to fight for a nation that needs us to engage in the battle? If you're in California, you've seen the battle and our vote is our voice. We have to speak up. It's a giant step toward turning the trajectory of our state. If we're parents, we have to be disciple makers and mentors. We have to be uh, families who are engaged, civically engaged, familially engaged. Our state needs us. Our country needs us. Our future is literally birthed in the present moment and it's up to us to steer that ship in the right direction. It begins in the home. And this is one of the key reasons I encourage homeschooling families to belong to a cooperative, a homeschool co-op or a homeschool academy. There's this benchmarking process, this sharpening process that comes when you permit just enough peer exposure to allow your child to see that A, there will always be someone better, stronger, smarter, cuter, faster, and more able. That's okay. Find your lane kid and stay in it, right? (laughs) Find your lane adult, find your lane parent. It works for all of us. And B, Being around people who are better than you will do one of two things. It will expose your character. This is good because when character issues rise to the surface, we can deal with them Yes, Henry David Thoreau thought he could go into the woods to live deliberately, but without the interaction of other human beings, we don't reach our full measure of potential. Remember, the human brain is a social organ, as Dr. Dan Siegel put it. We're molded in the context of our relationships, for better or for worse. So being around people who are raising our ceiling is going to increase our capacity as well. In his book, The Developing Mind, How Relationships and the Brain Interact to Shape Who We Are, Dr. Dan Siegel demonstrates definitively that our relationships throughout life provide a basis for neural growth and transformation. Both the potential and the need for these connective patterns exist lifelong. As Ainsworth's strange study, groundbreaking studies on attachment in early life demonstrated, in order for a healthy, secure attachment to develop, the parent must have, quote, the capacity to perceive and respond to the child's mental state. Now, this is physically impossible if the parent sees the child for the typical 15 minutes a day that's experienced by modern American families. Neuroscientists have observed clear causation between socio-emotional deficiencies in the early years and specific affect responses later in life. For example, if there's a lack of worth, connection, or assurance in early life, a pattern of anger will be developed. Without connection, affection, and approval, a pattern of sadness and shame emerges. If there's a lack of assurance, security, certainty, a pattern of anxiety or fear shapes the neural world, and eventually the individual's outer world Uh, from Dr. Siegel's work. In order to heal, says Siegel, there has to be this move toward coherence and attempt to integrate all these fragmented parts into a whole, become less rigid, more adaptable. He says, quote, as integration is achieved across the numerous dimensions of living, a sense of the unity of being is revealed. As Balbi showed, because attachment relationships are, quote, a principal key to the mental health of the next generation, we have to learn all we can about their nature and the psychological conditions that influence development for better or for worse. We talked last week about the rise of perceived stress in college students. Now, it's not that college is necessarily more stressful than it was 100 years ago, but the data shows that students today possess less efficacy, less resilience, which makes them more prone to stress. Some of this, obviously, breakdown of the American family, the lack of a secure base, as we talked about earlier. But another very important point that we're going to talk about today is this snowflake culture, that we have not developed a sense of resilience in our children. From a developmental perspective, some stressors are necessary. You know, they sustain life. They extend the growth experience. Like if we think about muscular tissues strengthened through periods of stress and rest, like weightlifting. From a metaphorical perspective, beneficial stress is like the experience of a butterfly breaking free from its cocoon, pressing its walls against the outer shell to enhance blood flow, strengthen cellular structures to be ready for the creature and its flight to freedom. In the same way, humans need the impact of stress to create the physical, the emotional fortitude that's needed for success in life. As any professor can tell you, these mini stressors function as building blocks of socioeconomic success in the college environment. So we need, some su- we need some stressors, but there is a limit to stress's effectiveness. Too little stress leads to apathy. Too much stress leads to emotional overload. In the earliest phase of human life within the uterine environment, we already see the effects of stress. Too much maternal stress can create a child that's emotionally flat, or an opposite response can create a child who is um, overreactive or prone to overreaction. A friend of mine used to joke that he was birthed of a long line of overreactors. And in truth, that's an accurate assessment. It's biologically heritable in a sense, um, but obviously you're you're trained up uh, you know, by those around you. Now, certain types of stressors, you might ask, are, are they more impacting than others? Like, for example, relational stressors, are those more impacting? We certainly see this in the Stanford preschool studies, where cortisol rises and negatively impacts behavior when cho- children are removed from non-maternal care. Even the stressors of being in an environment that's not their home elevates their cortisol because it's not natural. They were designed to need their mommy, not a rotating daycare provider. Their biological responses tell the story. Romans one twenty. God's nature is evidenced in the created realm. Stoltz writes in his book, Adversity Quotient, that repeated actions which stem from an internalized system of belief lead to the creation of what he calls neural superhighways, habits-only lanes on the neural network lane that's, that develops this <clears throat> highly effective task of learning a new skill, but unfortunately, in this case, it's also equally effective for learning a destructive habit. <clears throat> so... If we want to make a generation of snowflakes, we do the opposite of the steps of resilience. One, we have to limit children's sense of autonomy and control. The public school's goal of controlling every minute with a bell or a buzzer, raising your hand for teacher permission on anything from getting a drink to going to the bathroom, regulating every second of their day. Number two, if we want to make a snowflake, we should continue to reduce students' sense of empathy by replacing it with cynicism or disconnecting them from humanity with masks and plastic cubicle cages so they feel alone and isolated. Number three. We should keep our language oriented toward victimhood if we want to create snowflakes so that there's no opportunity to develop stress hardiness. Critical race theory, which was already in play in government schools in Postman's Day 50 years ago, does an excellent job of creating victims by pitting people against each other in a bourgeoisie versus proletariat, victim versus oppressor mindset. This goes a long way to reducing empathy, which is number two on the list. So two birds with one stone right there. Number four, if we want to make snowflakes, we need to keep them focused on petty disagreements and interpersonal conflicts and not allow the Matthew 18 principle to be part of their daily dialogue. That way, they won't develop interpersonal skills. Remember, um, Gatto talked about this in the classroom environment of how seeing students fail, uh, train students to think that everyone needed government intervention that pitted them against one another Social media is also highly effective in this one, pitting people against each other, hiding behind the walls of anonymity to throw out these cruel and degrading comments like hurling weapons from a fortress. Number five, if we want to create a snowflake, we need to keep their schoolwork from connecting to anything meaningful in the real world so they won't possess any actual problem solving skills. And this will also limit their sense of autonomy and of efficacy, number one. So again, two birds right there. Number six. If we want to make a snowflake, we need to keep them segregated from what Bronfenbrenner called the adult world of work so that they have no idea how to make important decisions. They will become what Postman called the childified adult. Keep them in age segregated peer groups for as many hours as possible each day from school to sports to church services. Keep them away from older students and parents who might call them out on their immaturity and call them up to greatness. That'll work great if you want to make a snowflake. If you want to make a snowflake, you want to keep them from, being, from establishing any realistic goals and expectations. Set their ideals too high to be attainable. Surround them with materialistic celebrities who will govern their thought life and make them miserable and dissatisfied with their family's level of material success. Follow in the footsteps of the university payoff parents by doing all the work for them. Never let them fail. Never allow their ideas to have consequences. Number eight, if you want to make a snowflake, prevent students from learning that's from their successes as well as their failures. Now, this can be done in two ways. You can keep them from failing and clean up every mistake they make, as one of my family members did when he kept battling and bailing a meth addict out of jail. The Bible says a fool returns to his folly like a dog returns to his vomit. But if you want to create a snowflake, you have to keep them from learning from their successes. They should be groomed to see successes as accidental, lucky, not the result of hard work. Otherwise, they'll develop a sense of autonomy that will save them from the snowflake syndrome. So keep them from learning from their successes and keep them from either failing or learning from their failures. Number nine, if you want to make a snowflake, the ninth rule is that resilience comes from being a compassionate, contributing member of society. So if we want to make a snowflake, we have to keep children segregated from meaningful work and civic engagement. They must be made to feel that there's no rhyme or reason to the political process and that their vote doesn't matter. And that one is clearly working. Project Vote Smart did a study a few years ago on why Gen Zs don't vote, and they said that the main reason Gen Zs don't vote in elections is because they feel their vote won't make a difference. There we go. Learned helplessness. It's right there. If we want to make a snowflake, we need to shield our children from correction. If their coaches won't let them play, make your demands known. If their Sunday school teacher says they won't obey, defend the child, stomp your feet, and vow never to return to that mean spirited church that would dare to question the character of your little Prince Charming. And finally, if we want to make a snowflake, we know that resilient people live responsible lives based on a set of thoughtful values. Now, the public school system has worked overtime on this one since Howard Kirschenbaum first introduced the values clarification movement in 1964. The public school system removed values, pulled up the moral anchors, and we've watched as a result students become increasingly disenfranchised, depressed, purposeless drifters. We didn't reach the treacherous height of statistical norms by accident. There's a reason that Gen Zs are the most anxious, depressed, atheist generation in the history of our nation. When we look at the characteristics needed to develop resilience in children, it is absolutely sobering, absolutely striking, because every single one of the characteristics designed, required for developing resilience is literally undermined by the public school system. So if you want to raise a snowflake, just keep sending them off in the big yellow prison bus enrolled in your local government indoctrination center. Press, shake, freeze, and voila, there you'll have your very own snowflake. And what will the outcome be? What will that icy, fragile little snowflake face in 10 years, in 20 years? Your snowflake won't last in college because she may run into the last remaining teacher who actually cares about truth and who will offend your little princess, who will then drop out of college. Your snowflake won't be able to hold down an adult relationship because he'll learn to curl up in the fetal position every time his spouse points out a flaw. He'll storm out of the relationship over irreconcilable differences, and then he'll take that baggage to the next snowflake relationship. Your snowflake won't be able to hold down a job because it will be an average of 50 days between every commendation, and your snowflake will feel overlooked, devalued, and mistreated because he doesn't get constant recognition for his below-average work. But if, instead, we want to raise up a generation of champions, then we need to take an opposite approach. We need to stop filling their days with busy work when school only takes two to three hours a day to complete. When skills like arithmetic and reading only take 100 hours to master the basics, we need to give students a sense of control over their lives instead of ruling them with a buzzer and a raised hand. We need to give them the opportunity to interact with people of all ages, not these age segregated microcosms that keep them from learning mentorship and intergenerational communication. We need to make their schoolwork related to the real world so they can learn problem-solving skills and decision-making skills that will help them navigate the issues of adult life. And they'll stop posting hashtag adulting to celebrate mediocre milestones like cooking dinner. We need to help them develop realistic goals and expectations to connect the dots between their failures and their successes. We need to teach them civic engagement, how to become a compassionate, contributing member of society as Nabor and Matei point out, children don't become responsible members of society by hanging out with other children. They learn these values by being parented by adults. Resilient children know how to think, how to respond, how to live devoted to the set of values, how to walk in congruence with the values that their parents have trained them up in. Parents, moms, dads, these are on our shoulders. If we raise a generation of snowflakes, they will melt when trouble comes. If we raise a generation of champions, they will stand strong and hold back the waves of darkness rushing over our nation. And isn't that our goal? When we've done all we can do, that we will stand and stand strong. It's our responsibility to speak life and purpose, to inject courage and hope into the next generation. If you're new to the show or if you're homeschooling for the first time, you can hear reposts of my K Praise radio show, Mindset Matters, which airs every Saturday at 11 p.m. right here on the Communication Architect podcast. Just scroll back for more episodes, interviews, and tips of the trade. And be sure to check out what we're accomplishing in and through our partnerships with local parents and the local church right here in San Diego. Visit us at cvcu.us, that's Chula Vista Christian University, and awakenacademysd.com. In fact, Chula Vista Christian University is is unleashing some phenomenal high school outreach classes in October. So stay tuned for that. You'll find helpful tools for support, community, and encouragement. And if you're a pastor in San Diego County, please DM me for help on getting your church active in the homeschool support realm. If we all work together as parents and teachers and local churches, we can absolutely shift this trajectory. So let's stay no to snowflakes and let's say yes to resilient visionaries who will help us turn this nation around. See you next week. Thanks again for joining us here on The Communication Architect. If you have questions about today's episode or if there are topics you'd like to see us address, send your comments via Instagram to at Dr. Lisa Dunn or via email to contacts at drlisadunn.com. That's drlisadunn dot com. And remember, strategic communication will help you build greater emotional health and relational resilience. So don't miss the next episode. I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and I look forward to talking with you next time right here on The Communication Architect.